Unexplained Deaths and Mysteries with Deborah Davis. Welcome back. We are here for our second episode of Jack the Ripper. That's the original Jack the Ripper. And to be honest with you, we're we are a week now from when we recorded the last episode. So it's been it's been a week of kind of I think recovering to be honest with you from recording that first episode. It was an episode that we've never recorded in that style before and that's where obviously Ian was giving all the details of all the murders, what happened etc and I was just sat here kind of gazing through the window looking at the sky and everything that I picked up as a medium I was kind of interrupting him and and giving him my opinions and I think Ian found it quite exhausting too and so We've taken a little bit of time out. I've actually done some research and so we have lots to tell you today. But it's really important, everybody that's listening, if you haven't listened to the previous episode about the Ripper, please go and do so now and then hop back onto this one. Otherwise, you won't understand what we're talking about. But for now, I'm going to hand you over to Ian and he's going to tell you all about what he thinks actually happened with with the original Jack the Ripper. So off you go, Ian. Debbie, hi. Good to see you again. Yeah, I'd like to just echo what you said uh, earlier on. I, I found our earlier review into the Ripper murders to be, frankly, fascinating, but uh, equally exhausting. And I think during the last week, I've done a lot of sleeping. Um, I believe I conquered my first two personal goals. That is to better understand my curiosity into this case. And secondly, to give a voice to the five victims. I intend to pronounce my third and final outcome, uh, naming my suspect, a little bit later on. But I wonder if we can just indulge in another area that's uh, made me even more sort of uh, alerted to. Um, My feelings, it was very emotional. um, And since this has been a very liberating experience for me to discuss a series of crimes that has gripped me for decades. As you know, I make no apologies. My background is within the criminal justice and law sections or areas. Both rely on logic and forensic investigation, somewhat contrary to that of a medium. For our listeners, especially skeptics, Debbie, how did the visions arise? As you said earlier on, you know, it was almost on the hoof as I was talking, you were interrupting, but, uh, you know, that that was brilliant. That that was the flow of, of, of of the process. But how does that work? Okay, well, for me personally, and this is something that's happened my whole life through, um, when I was a very small child, for instance, at school, one of the children might have been talking about something to do with, you know, their their own family, etc. And I would chip in with, oh, is that your granddad that wears the cap that, you know, had these glasses that, you know, such and such? And of course, back then, when we were all so small, we didn't really realise quite how weird it was. And obviously, as things progressed, you know, and you get older and you get to be like 10 and 11 years old. Well, yes, everybody thoroughly realised it was it was completely weird. And I had this nickname of witchy poo. So, you know, <laughs> so when I got you in the last episode to detail all the murders, I literally just sit here 
And I don't know anything at all unless um, I'm being told it by, I'm talking spiritually. So when you were talking about the murders, I'm hearing voices. I take every single box for being, you know, locked up somewhere, honestly. So I'm hearing voices. I see visions a lot. And those visions, when one happens, they take over my own eyesight. It's like I I don't see the room that I'm in anymore looking through the window. I've got a vision of a scene or a person or something that's happening. I'm used to it because I've spent my entire life like this. So it's it's all consuming. And and at the time I know, I know through experience that the time that the vision happens or the words are being said, I give it as I hear it because I know in a nanosecond it will be gone and then I'm given something else and something else. So if I waited till the end of you speaking, I could have easily forgotten what was just given to me because information is coming into me at a fast rate of knots, if you if you understand. So it's always the case and it was that that I always give that information as I as I get it. It never usually makes sense to me, like in a reading situation with somebody back when I used to sit, I had clients that came from all over the world, a little old lady from India, for instance, that came who'd lost her son. And and then in those situations, I'm saying what I'm seeing, what I'm hearing, and it makes no sense to me, but it does to the person that I'm talking to. That's just how it works. Um, I've no explanation for it other than to say, I think spirits reside in, in a higher dimension maybe the fourth dimension, fifth dimension, I'm not sure. But that's where I think they are. I don't think it's really anything creepy or spooky. I just think that it's an, it's a, you know, an extension of this life. Debbie, thank you. That, that explains a lot to me. The spontaneity, I think, of, mm. of your interactions during the first podcast. And, and that explains perhaps how I attempted to process that dialogue and hence my exhaustion. And I'd like to ask you emotionally, how does it affect you? I mean, did you go into a darkened room no. like I did have a sleep <laughs> after the last Ian, podcast? When I was actually well, reading for people, I never wanted to actually go and read for people, to be honest, because I'm actually quite a private person. I never really wanted to do it. But one of my friends who had a beauty salon <laughs> went in one day and um I was a I thought I was going to get my nails done, um, but no, she'd got one of her friends in and persuaded me to read for her. And, um, and I actually thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, but words soon spread about me and suddenly, basically within six months, my diary was full 18 months in advance. And I would sit and read for people for eight, nine hours a day. Each client I spent an hour with. And Every single client, they would come in and not say anything. I never wanted them to ever give me any information or say anything to me. They would literally just sit down. And I love the tarot cards. I think I was born with a set of tarot cards in my hand. And I I would put down these tarot cards for them and basically tell them the story of what was going on in their life. And then spiritually, somebody always, always would come through And then as they were saying, well, gosh, 
That's right. How could you know that? That's actually happening right now. And yet, that's right. That's right. And then spiritually, be saying, whoa, 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 hang on one second. And your dad is saying X, Y, Z, da, 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 da. And, and I would do that for eight, nine hours a day. I work at lightning speed. I really do. And what I noticed about that lightning speed, Debbie, in, in, in the previous podcast was you were flipping from the, the mind of, yeah. the, of the ripper to the victims as well. I mean, how on earth do you process that, you know, in terms of there were six individuals there, you know, five yeah. victims and the offender? How do you sort of untangle all of that data coming um, know, to you? I don't. I literally say what I see or hear in that second at that time. But don't forget, I was born like this. I don't know any different. I I do not know any different at all. And many times over, um, well, I have a situation where I'm talking to somebody and and then suddenly I'm saying, oh, hang on, I'm just seeing, you know, say a room, for instance. I could be talking to somebody and I'll say, oh, whoa, one second, does this mean something to you? I'm looking at this terraced house and, and this white front door and I'm sure I can see number 12 on it and I'm walking through the door, the lounge is on the right, I walk through and I'll describe everything in that room, everything. And they'll go, um, that's weird. That, that was my grandmother's house or, you know, whatever. Um, yeah, and I, but I'm used to it. I don't know. I don't know any different to being like I am. I can't imagine. I I try sometimes to imagine what life must be like if you if you don't see people who've gone, you don't hear them, you don't, you know, none of that exists. And that would mean I would literally get up in the morning and probably go and make a cup of coffee and have a day where I just maybe sat. I don't know, looking at screen or whatever, and then made tea, watch telly, go to bed. That, I, that, I, I don't, that would be an incredibly boring life, I think. I don't know. I don't know any different. Debbie, there are, there are elements of that that uh, sort of describe my life. But um, anyway, um, one thing I've learned is that uh, for the next podcast, I'm going to have uh, one of the yeah. energy drinks next to me to, to keep me going. But uh, Debbie, thank you. You've given me a platform now to perhaps articulate something that uh, I've only ever written about. So um, what I intend to do from my criminologist background then is give you my thoughts on the suspect. And this is quite a, um, a sort of moment in time in my life where this has been the reason for me to keep going back to that mm. east end of London. Yeah. Um, as I said in the first podcast, I'm not a ripperologist, but um, – you know, I've I've looked at the data. I've looked at the you know reliable uh, streams of information, and uh, yeah, I'd like to announce my my suspect. But let me put it into context. Um, the victims knew each other. Proximity of residents, frequenting mutual ground and sharing a common occupation. In addition, they shared intimate and extraordinary liaisons. In this case, I believe sufficient for the need to be silenced. Today, sex workers look out for each other. I've no doubt that this important camaraderie also existed in 1888. Over time, key evidence has gone missing, and I contend that certain aspects of this investigation remained off the public radar. Although this was quite understandable, as 
you know, even today, a lot of, uh, you know, criminal investigations, particularly with serial killers, mirrors that reflection. But I believe that a lot of the missing information from 1888 murders isn't completely down to errant administration. I think it's smacked of a potential whitewash. Reflecting the order by the Metropolitan Police Commissioner, Sir Charles Warren, during the Ripper inquiry to wash away crime scene graffiti and potentially crucial evidence that read, the Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. I believe a highly educated and cunning primary offender may have intended to throw the pursuing cops off the scent by deception and confusion. The murderer clearly had surgical skills and had, in all the murders, save that of Elizabeth Stride, mutilated the victims with a concentrated focus upon the reproductive organs. To achieve this level of butchery, they needed time and an accomplice to act as a lookout. The human density of the killing fields, coupled with a heightened police presence once a serial nature of offending had been established, meant the offenders needed the ironclad immunity to come and go as they pleased. Royal carriages were afforded this unique protection. The striking allure of Mary in particular was captivating, a highly sexual companion of optimum childbearing age who could have enchanted the very privileged elite. Interestingly, in an article published in November 1970, Dr Thomas Stoll, an octogenarian surgeon, recounted a discussion in his youth with Caroline Ackland, the daughter of a royal physician who had treated a young man riddled with syphilis which had migrated to his brain. As unlikely as it had seemed on previous walks, these connections started to forge for me, and I looked at motive and opportunity. The Royal Physician's illiterate coach driver, having been quizzed by police during the Ripper investigation and choosing to be less than discreet, suddenly became silent when allegedly a vital organ was surgically removed from him. I have that information from a reliable source that I trust. However, I've been unable to verify that through other online sources. So the presumed identity of the syphilis-riddled patient, I contend that was Prince Albert Victor, Duke of Clarence and Avondale, grandson of Queen Victoria. Since Mary was Catholic, the succession of a non-Protestant offspring to the throne was inconceivable. My prime suspect, Debbie, Sir William Gull, physician in ordinary to Queen Victoria. What really are the basics of, of why you, you think that? I guess where I'm coming from, I believe that Prince Albert, okay, Victor, the Duke of Clarence and mm. the grandson of Queen Victoria, had been putting it around yeah. to lots of prostitutes yeah. in the East End, okay? But he'd got Mary pregnant. Mm. Yeah. And the other ladies knew that that pregnancy had occurred and who the father was. So that's why Sir William Gull was deployed to kill these women. So that secret and that, you know, the, the likelihood of a baby being born illegitimately uh, into the royal family, particularly as a Catholic, that's what, what I believe had happened with William Gull. And he was allowed to, you know, walk around the East end of London, well, not necessarily walk around, but be afforded the opportunity to go around the east end of London in a carriage with his driver, who acted as a lookout. The police couldn't stop royal carriages in those days. And you needed a lookout for that type of, um, you know, butchery to occur. And I was told on one of my walks, the last walk I did, from an ex-detective from the Met, 
that he'd seen um, uh, documents uh, which suggested that uh, the coach driver had actually had his tongue surgically removed. He was illiterate and he was a very, you know, liked to talk about his experiences. And I believe he was quite, you know, was shut up by either Sir William Gull or somebody else of a surgical background. So if he so, needed um, to kill the women, you know, he could have just killed them in, in a very quick manner, like slit their throat or stabbed them or or poisoned them, used something like chloroform or, or something like that, poured something down the throat. Why, if it was purely yeah. to keep them quiet, why? I Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a good question. How I would um, counter that is that I think that because Sir William Gull was a a highly intelligent um, individual um, in terms of not only his ability to carry out that level of surgery, but I think he was clever enough to put the cops off the scent by suggesting that this was some sort of madman that was going out there, you know, harming people and butchering them to, to that degree, because that wouldn't necessarily be what, you know, a surgeon does. So I think that the whole aspect of you know, giving that false narrative that it was some madman going around there slashing women, I think that was a convenient foil for him to hide behind. Okay. And he would be doing that risking obviously being hanged to protect somebody else. Yeah, but I think if you look at the levels of risk involved, if uh, he was afforded that sort of immunity where he couldn't be stopped, you know, by the police, because royal carriages couldn't be stopped by the police in those days. It gave him the ideal opportunity to go around unfettered around that particular area to carry out those crimes, particularly with somebody that was acting as, as a lookout. And if police came across a royal carriage, the chances are they'd probably just walk the other way. And, because, you know, and this that was, was that in was case those women spoke about what they knew. Yes, yeah. What was the time period yeah. again from the first death to the last death? The first victim, Mary Nichols, she was murdered on the 31st of August, 1888. And the final victim, Mary Jane Kelly, was murdered on the 9th of November, well, 1888. Well, what I would say then is that there was plenty of time and opportunity for the others to talk between August and November, wasn't there, really, or end of October, to talk about what they knew. If if the murders were were being done to silence them, then you know, there's a there's quite a long period where they could have said something. Oh Debbie, you're absolutely right. And, and you know, my disclosure, my naming of the mm-hmm. suspect. I mean, what the hell do I know when you compare, you know, with many other commentators on this particular murder? You know, I, I think mm-hmm. that it goes into hundreds of uh, of likely mm. suspects, but uh, that's me putting yeah. my cards on the table. You talked about tarot cards. <laughs> Come on then, Debbie, put your cards on the table and let's have your suspect. In my personal opinion, the person responsible for the Ripper murders was Sir John Williams, without a shadow of a doubt. As I went through that whole process of listening to you on the last episode where you detailed the murders, everything I felt was that there was a passion behind these murders. And I don't feel, as some do, that the reason 
for removing the uterus and all the female organs and things, etc. that he did. I don't think that was to explore infertility at all. I really don't. Um, I actually feel that that was a psychological response to anger at the fact that his wife had never conceived. And, um, and back then, you know, there was quite a thought at that, that time period that infertility was down to the woman, you know, and, and that it, it couldn't possibly be the man, etc. So yeah, I do. I think it's Sir John, Sir John Williams. Sir John Williams uh, became a private doctor to the royal family in 1886. He was actually the obstetrician to Princess Beatrice in particular. And I actually believe that he decided, as I said in the previous podcast, he decided that he couldn't father a child to his wife. Obviously, that had never happened at all. But here was an ideal opportunity with Princess Beatrice. He was the one that attended her. He specialised. He wasn't just any old surgeon. He specialised in pregnancy. You know, he, this was his area, his expertise. And I think he thought, okay, this actually would be quite simple to be able to father a child by a Princess Beatrice if he inserted his own sample without her knowledge, or, or maybe he seduced her. I don't know, but I think probably. Maybe he inserted his sample without, um, without her knowledge during some, some type of internal, as we would call it as women, lots of women listening will know what I mean, examination. Um, I think that he did that in 1888. I think that the last murder that was committed by him I think that we would be around the time period of Princess Beatrice uh, missing her second menstrual cycle. And it would be by that that they would, you know, determine that she was pregnant. So it coincides with the time of when Prince Leopold was born in 1889. That last murder, what I mean is, that would be when Princess Beatrice would have roughly around that time of that last murder is when she would have missed that that second period. It's just funny that 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 ended. Now, there's something actually really interesting that I found out about Sir John Williams, and this is factual. So he actually um, founded the National Library of Wales in the early 1900s, and upon his death, he donated a collection of 25,000 books, but he also donated a few personal items too. Did you know about this, Ian? No, Debbie. He donated a knife, badly blunted knife of his. He donated several tissue samples of what we don't know. And he also donated diaries his diaries. Several pages are missing from his diary for the year 1888. 
in his diary, he also mentions uh, in his, one of his little, you know, notebooks, actually, he mentions he performed an abortion on a Mary Ann Nichols in 1885. Wow. He also mentions in his diary that he would be in Whitechapel on the 6th of November, 1888. Is the 6th of November, 1888, significant? That was three days before the murder, the last murder of Mary Jane Kelly, who was murdered on the 9th of November, 1888. He was in the area. He was certainly in the area on the 6th of November, but... He donated 25,000 books. That's fine. I understand that. He was a huge book lover. I am too. Not to that degree. Pete would kill me. But he donated a knife, one knife. It's quite a widish blade at the base and then narrows. Basically, it fits the bill for the kind of injuries sustained by those women. Why, as a surgeon, would you donate one knife? Now, you think about it, he must have had so much equipment as a surgeon. So much equipment. It was a badly blunted knife. Do you know what I think he's done? This is almost his his way of confessing, knowing that, that he would go to his grave and at least the instrument for whatever might be in the future with technology and developments of, you know, investigating things, things, there is the knife that was responsible for killing those women. He donated that knife and he donated those slides containing tissue. Now, to my knowledge and my research, there's been no DNA testing of the knife and the tissue samples. I don't know, though, if there are any remains in a laboratory somewhere from the women that were murdered, Uh, but I I actually Mm -hmm. think that more than likely they're probably buried somewhere, aren't they? That needs to be tested. That knife needs to be tested just to see if there is any DNA on there and the tissue samples. It's it's really interesting, Debbie, when you look at a lot of other serial killers, particularly that those ones have been found. And Ted Bundy comes to uh, to mind on this one that uh, their arrogance and ego uh, can be very much coupled sometimes symbolically with the production of certain items that are related to the crime, almost as I'm too clever for you yeah. to catch me, and I will put the evidence in your face. So so that connection is is valid that you mentioned there but um would be incredible i guess i didn't know about the the tissue samples um it would be incredible to connect both um i'm minded to think that on this occasion debbie we we actually agree on the occupation or the primary occupation of, of jack the ripper but i'm also minded to think we're going to be both off to the tower for these disclosures. But I have to say, from a criminologist's point of view, from the first podcast that we did, that you were shooting all this data together a week later, the fact you followed up on that data 
on a inquiry line, which I think is extremely mm. persuasive. Um, certainly requires far more investigation. Perhaps it's going to be out of our remit to do those types of scientific checks mm. that you've mentioned why, there. But um, why would this surgeon have pages missing, ripped out from his diary for eighteen eighty eight? Why would he do that ordinarily, and why eighteen eighty eight specifically? Because there could does, there does come to a point where you you can say, okay, something can be coincidence. I don't really believe in coincidences, to be honest with you. Um, but you know, when there are several so-called coincidences, then that to me smacks of no. There's more to this, and donating a knife, a badly blunted knife at that, and one that fits the bill for for all the injuries sustained by those women is quite incredible. And just, I think it was three slides containing human tissue. So these, it feels like they're trophies to me. It feels mm. like they're trophies. And, and he was handing them over on a plate and kind of thinking, well, you know, there we go. But are you going to, are you actually going to suss this, that it was me from this? No, nobody did. No, absolutely nobody did. But I don't, I think it, it, it is a lot bigger than that. I don't believe that Leopold was his natural, you know, father's son. I think he was Sir John Williams's son. And that's the only reason that he stopped murdering when he discovered that she had missed her second menstrual cycle and um, that he was actually, yes, probably going to be the father there of a child. I guess I would be failing in my duty if I didn't come up with a, a contrary suggestion or, or, or argument on that, Debbie, in terms of the missing pages in the, in the diary. Um, either your prime suspect could have removed them himself or somebody else could have done to have disrupted mm. the, the evidence trail. Um, I'm keen to establish, though, during your research, did you see any imagery of these actors that you've mentioned here? And if so, did anything speak to you from those images, albeit, you know, many, many, you know, over 100 years old? I'll tell you, I'll tell you what's happened over the past week on two occasions to me. And that is I've woken up having spent the entire night seeing what I can only describe as, well, I suppose you would call it a dream only. I, my dreams are never just normal dreams. They're, they always involve something to do with something to do with what I'm researching or looking at at the time or, you know, what I'm involved in at the time. And um, like, for instance, sometimes that has been looking for somebody who is missing, etc. But over the past week, on two occasions, I've woken up having spent the night asleep, I suppose you would say in a dream state, seeing the faces of these women and it's absolutely harrowing seeing them. They almost float past it in my vision. And I'm asleep, so yeah, dream state. But they look, they look absolutely awfully traumatized. They, it's awful. It's actually really quite distressing. 
I'm used to seeing things like that. I've seen things like that my whole life through. Sometimes I'll see visions like that before I go to sleep at night, which, you know, is shocking when you think about it, isn't it? Um, and I have, I've seen those faces of the women and, and I have felt very much that, that they are saying, we want justice. We want his name out there. We want justice. Will they ever get it? I think they, they will only ever get it if there's DNA testing done. And I don't see why DNA testing shouldn't be done on those items because that, that will give, you know, a clear answer. Yes, there's DNA there. That tissue is, you know, connected to one or, or more of the victims or not. You know, they, they just need to test it and that's it. Why haven't they? And I think that, I think the secret goes beyond it just being Sir John Williams. I think he, he's connected to, to the royal family as the father of Leopold. Because he was the one born in 1889. It's the right time, his birth, to coincide with that second menstrual cycle being missed for that last murder. Unfortunately, Leopold didn't father any children. If he had, we would have had a bit of a, you know, a DNA connection. We would have been able to see clearly, but he didn't father any children. So we will never be able to prove it. Wow. First of all, I guess, congratulations to you for having the, the conviction to put your cards on the table as I did. I have to say that your methodology and your research is compelling. To the sceptics out there, and I know this is a tough question, but we talk about certainty. These, these murders you know, occurred in 1888, so the certainty after all that time is we can never reach that level of, of accuracy. But to any doubters and ripperologists that listen to this podcast, how certain are you in your assertion? And what do you believe that those samples? Yeah, I really do believe very, very much that that if those samples could be DNA tested, they'll link to the women. I don't know what happened to the women, but I'm going to be in London for CrimeCon on the 11th and 12th of June. And I am going to get, I have a researcher who who will, you know, look at the history of somewhere. You know, if I go to somewhere interesting that, you know, I pick things up on while I'm there, then Kel, my researcher, will will find out, you know, if I'm right about the things I've picked up on, et cetera. So I'm going to ask her to look and see if she can locate uh, where where the women are buried. And I'm going to go and take some flowers and lay some flowers on the graves if I can find where they are. But in terms of DNA, they should exhume them and um, get those slides tested and the knife. But that many people have probably handled it by now. There could be very little left on the knife. Yeah. I mean, the the, the actual piece of tissue, um, I, I, you know, I'm not a forensic expert and I don't know how long, you know, DNA, uh, you know, degrades over time, but there's a potential there. But I think this particular podcast has held true to our discussions prior to going on air many, many months ago that, 
we really wanted our investigations to prompt reflection by listeners, but also to push for further inquiry. And I think on this occasion, Debbie, you've convinced me that that line of inquiry is certainly worth going to the levels of scientific reflection, particularly with DNA. So on this occasion, I congratulate (laughs) you. um, And thank you for allowing me to perhaps, you know, view this conundrum that, that I've had running around in my head ever since I can remember. And way before I became a police officer, I think for many officers as well, this is the sort of litmus test of of everything that uh, investigations stand for. And I think you've thrown an awful lot of um, light, not only from a medium point of view, but you've actually validated a lot of your observations and visions with some talented research. Yeah, I'd be really interested to see what listeners think. And also the ripperologists out there, because there's an awful lot of, uh, you know, interest in new theories. And, um, you know, we've always said before, if you think of something different or you've got a counter-argument, we'd love to hear from you. But Debbie, I'm very, very grateful for uh, your support on this one. And I think it's probably, we're bringing this part to a conclusion. I think we can probably, once you visit the scene and and, and the graves that you've alluded to uh, and your colleague um, helps you with more of that, we may be able to nudge that inquiry so. a little bit further. I would really, along. really hope so. Yeah, definitely. I would hope so. You can email us at hello at unexplaineddeaths.com if you want to add your thoughts to the conversation or you know more about this case, etc. Uh, we welcome any of your communication. You can also find us on social media. Ian is on LinkedIn, aren't you, Ian? And Instagram. And even on Facebook as well. I I I I I must get my head round um uh, uh Instagram. You're always telling me <laughs> off that I'm doing it wrong. So I'll 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 try and get my head around that. But also while we're plugging the social media, Debbie, thanks for a, a wonderful in there. Um I've got my own site as well, www.kirkytalk.com. That's K-I-R-K-E-Y-T-A-L-K. Um and I write an awful lot. Uh, for a variety of uh, magazines, both nationally and internationally. And I cover subjects that have puzzled, surprised and overwhelmed me. So uh, there is quite a bit on crime there. So if you go to the website and uh, look at the post category on crime, but there's an awful lot of other stuff that uh, I find equally as perplexing. And I sort of, uh, you know, spill it all out on that website. So if you ever want a bit of entertainment, have a look at that site as well. But uh, thanks for the opportunity to, to, to plug that, Debbie. So, yes, get in touch, email us if you want to. Find us on social media. I'm always at Deborah Davis Psychic across all the social media channels. So that's how you'll find me there. We will be back soon with our next episode. Take care, everybody. And I look forward to speaking to you all again soon. Bye-bye.